pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Ordinarily, I would not take it upon myself to endorse a motion picture. But so seldom does an educator have the opportunity to frankly comment on such an important subject as sexual incompatibility in marriage that I am grateful for this opportunity. Now here are a few preview scenes from a very significant motion picture. Please Don't Touch Me is a human story of a teenage bride uneducated in the facts of life and love. A picture that dares to rip aside the veil of ignorance and shows you what goes on inside a million homes. Recommended as a motion picture that everyone should definitely see. Professor Sam Hughes says, designed to both entertain and educate at the very same time. A beautiful young wife desiring the love and passion of a sympathetic husband, but who denies him his right when she says, please don't touch me. You'll see how a tragic grieving experience in this young girl's life returns later to haunt the happiness of her married life until love relations are impossible. It isn't your being pregnant that worries me, dear. I simply wonder how you will be able to stand it emotionally. Mother, how many times do I have to tell you that I am not pregnant? Most men are brutes anyhow and only think of their own satisfaction, never of a woman's. Mother, I don't mean that. Bill isn't a brute. It's just that I don't enjoy our intimacy. I thought I would. And I believe I may have when we were first married. Please Don't Touch Me pulls no punches, calls a spade a spade, and carefully considers subtle sexual problems that takes you back to the old days of Mesmer, who hypnotized his women into compassion. You'll see the ancient Egyptian sleep temples, where high priests treated the problem of frigidity in women by use of the loved one of Isis. These age-old rituals are clearly depicted in this picture. Thrill as you watch the fabulous flagellantes log themselves to a bloody pulp, yet they feel no pain. Witness the miraculous exhibitions of torture as the black fakir perform strange ritualistic feats. Then my feelings began changing, and I, I find myself not wanting him to come near me, and, and at times not even touch me. Do you love your husband? Here is a story of a torrid teenage bride with a heart of ice. I lit a cigarette for you. Yeah, I know. Tantalizing and vivid, alive with strange emotions. It is the most powerful sex hygiene story ever filmed, and definitely is one that every young man and woman, father and mother should see. Only the current trend of frankness has made the exhibiting of this motion picture possible. It is action-packed, 
yet warm with human relations, clean morally, and most important, educational. Make a date to see. Please, don't touch me. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am joined once again by Jimmy McDonough. He was on the show a while ago when we were talking about Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. And on this episode, he is talking about the Ormans. They are an incredible family that made a lot of interesting movies, started off in pure exploitation, moved on to Christian exploitation, some great, crazy films that they made, really a wonderfully weird group of movies. If you haven't seen them, you need to check those out. There is a brand new box set of those out from Indicator. That box set is called From Hollywood to Heaven, The Lost and Saved Films of the that box set is called From Hollywood to Heaven, The Lost and Saved Films of the Ormond Family. It is available now if you go over to Diabolic DVD, and you can pick up Jimmy McDonough's book, The Exotic Ones, That Fabulous Filmmaking Family from Music City, USA, The Ormonds, and that is available wherever finer books are sold. It is one of those beautiful Fab Press books that will both look great on your bookshelf as well as entertain you for hours. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Jimmy McDonough, it is great having you back on the show. We talked years ago all about Russ Meyer, talking today about the Ormonds, and I am so curious, how did you even become aware of them initially? Mike, I was working in Times Square for various characters like Radley Metzger, and I got very fascinated with the world of low-budget film. To me, these guys were kind of like the characters who put out independent rock and roll in the 50s, just a ragtag bunch of guys operating under the radar, creating their own world, making their own business. And I found it very unusual, to say the least. And I started buying posters and stills and press book from a place in Eastern Pennsylvania. For the life of me, I can't remember what the business was called, but I just buy this exploitation stuff by the bushel because I was curious about it. I got a still for a movie called Please Don't Touch Me that shows the fantastic Vicki Karen leaning over her husband in the movie. He's got a murder tattoo on his arm. She's in lingerie. The tagline across the picture is, and after the cigarette will dot, dot, dot. I thought it was fabulous. I thought, I got to know more about this movie. Please don't touch me. And the people who made it. At the bottom of the still, it said, distributed by the Ormond Organization. And I thought, wow, organization. It makes it sound like there's a high rise in Nashville with a whole staff cranking this slop out. I got to know about these people. I managed to run my way into getting a number for Gene Ormond. And mind you, I hadn't seen any of the movies yet. I was just fascinated by their trail and what they sounded like. And I started talking to her. She was real secretive on the phone, Mike, because she was still doing business with the church world. She didn't want the church world to know about her secular activities. So it was all very cloak and dagger for a while. But I charmed my way into her universe. She certainly charmed me. Next thing you know, I was on a plane to Nashville, walking into their house, which was a set from one of their movies. There were props everywhere. 
religious statues, weird psychics. It was just unbelievably great. And then I spent the next week or so watching the movies with June, the movie she made, with her providing the world's first uh, Blu-ray commentaries there. And this would have been 1986. And son Tim was there, Ron, who directed their pictures. They had been passed away about five, six years before that. But I got to know him, and I fell in love with Jiren. And even before I decided, she told me I was writing a book about them. And life got in the way. I wrote six other books or whatever, and I always wanted to get back to it. And about 10 years ago, I got serious about it because Nicholas Reffin asked me what my dream project was that nobody else would do. And I said, this crazy book on the Ormonds. And before you know it, he had called Tim, made a deal to buy all the films that Tim had, and he produced this insanely extravagant book, which is now out. It looks amazing. The book looks fantastic. The movies, I've never seen them look this good before because I've seen a lot of these, and I came to them the other way. I came to them through the religious pictures and then found out that they did the exploitation stuff. Not to say that the religious stuff isn't exploitative. Right. The same techniques they used in exploitation they used for Jesus. Brilliant. What can I say? There are no movies like the Ormond Christian movies, certainly. They are fever dream, to put it mildly. Ha, ha. Yeah. My kind of dream. How did the Ormonds get into the exploitation business? Ron and June started in vaudeville. They were vaudeville partners. They took their show on the road. And they started taking Western stars out and exploiting them for personal appearances. We're talking about Sunset Carson and Lash LaRue. And through that connection, they met primarily Joy Houck and Francis White. And they wanted to get into pictures. Ron wanted to make pictures. And they started cranking out these low-budget Lash LaRue Westerns. And that's how the whole thing started. June ended up being the distribution arm of the Ormonds and did an incredible job selling the pictures. And all three of them, June, Ron, and their son, Tim, ended up being in the movies, which is just fabulous. (laughs) I love that you start the book with June and it's so much her story and that you really focus on her so much. And it's great because normally it's, Oh, and the wife. But you make her the star, which is wonderful. Oh, she's the star of the book. She's the reason the book exists. I dedicated the book to her. What can I say? June was showbiz incarnate, and she's the great guide, particularly in the earlier part of the book. She just has plenty to say about everything. I I love her to death. I wish she was here. She's a far more entertaining interview than I am. And she'd have you on the floor in stitches within five minutes. But I just hope I got some of that flavor in the book so people can remember and savor the show business wonder that was June Ormond. I think you do. The impression I get is that the woman was a firecracker. Hey, man, she was the only dame who had a, an ongoing account at Shoney's. Shoney's is like a restaurant, for those of you who don't know, that was like like Denny's or IHOP. It probably still exists. 
And she'd walk in like the Godfather and they'd all tend to her and she ran a tab there. Many of the interviews of the book were done at Shoney's. So you said that you met her in 86 and obviously you weren't working on this the entire time, but this must've taken a long darn time to put together, just collecting of all the information and all of the paraphernalia. But again, to go back to the actual look of the book, it is so rich with so many great pieces of ephemera, especially all those posters and lobby cards and just those tools of exploitation, you, you would sell the movies through the poster, through the lobby cards, and through those wonderful taglines. And those taglines are so lurid. Great. It's funny because their movies are so tame, and they definitely aim a crotch level for a lot of the, the material, but the movies themselves, they're relatively tame, you could say. But yeah, it was great when I went to visit them. She still had all their paper stuff down in the basement, and she just said, help yourself. And I got radio spots and window cards and all this stuff. And then little by little over the years, I'd run into people in the film business who led me to other curios of their career. And I was just a complete pack rat. I knew I'd do something with it one day. And here we are. The book is packed with just everything down to letters that June wrote me or Georgette Dante wrote me. It just feels good to have it out of my damn basement and onto the paper. It's a weight off my soul, I can tell you that. And just the coordination effort of coming out with this book and then the set of movies coming out from Indicator, how did that even happen? Oh, it was insane, Mike, let me tell you. We had designers get sick, break their hip. There was death, there was cancer. In the back of my mind, I thought most of my books tended on the dark side. And I thought, this is a sunny day at the carnival. This is just going to be fun. This book nearly put me into the ground. I cannot tell you. There was so much intrigue and problems and delays. And I was definitely hands on during the whole design. I had a real sharp feeling about the way the book should look and what it should reflect. So there was that, and then at the tail end, I said to Refn, we really should put the movies out on Blu-ray. It would be the perfect complement to the book. And he'd never been crazy about physical media. He liked having it on his website, currently being redesigned. This is Nicholas Refn, the director who fit the bill for this extravagance of Ormondia that's out there, the Blu-ray set and the book, with indicator, of course, of UK label. But it was just an incredible collaboration with many, many people. In particular, I have to thank Harvey Fenton, the publisher at Fab Press. The guy never misses a detail. He's just on it like some sort of gumshoe detective. He doesn't miss a beat. And he was insanely dedicated to the book and did all sorts of beautiful touches like the gold edging on the papers, which is similar to another book you people out there might be familiar with. And it just made things so perfect, those little touches. And yeah, I, I couldn't be happier with the way it all turned out. Can you tell me a little bit about how they got into kind of the psychic business? Because there's a little bit of that in Please Don't Touch Me about hypnotism, but they really got involved in that. Is that kind of sideshow life that they were living? They were in vaudeville. Ron Ormond, before he was Ron Ormond, was 
Ron Ormond, R-A-H-N Ormond, and a practic- practicing magician and mentalist at anything, anything that could be considered show business, they had a hand in, whether it was hypnotism or the Baptist church. And they got way into the whole esoteric scene. They were like pre-beatnik or maybe post-beatnik, I don't know. But they had a whole line of books that dealt with meditation and, and yes, hypnotism, how to teach yourself hypnotism. And June just loved it all. To her, it was just another aspect of show business. There's, I had a chapter about her UFO encounters, and they were involved with all the early UFO people and made a ridiculous movie that's nearly unwatchable called Edge of Tomorrow, starring one of the main UFO shysters. Just fit. It fit. All of it fits. From the cowboy movies to the spiritual stuff to the mentalist stuff. And then they roped him into doing this stuff on stage. He could read minds, et cetera, with dad's help. And it all it comes out of the carny, too. They just had that carny sense of a creative way to get a dollar out of your pocket, a nickel out of your pocket, a dime out of your pocket. For Please Don't Touch Me, they said marriage manuals. Ron would go on the drive-in speakers as Dr. Gregory Raymond Instead of commercials for hens during the day sitcom, you had Ron in the intermission or end of the drive-in broadcast telling you, buy this book for a buck and it will solve your problems under the sheets. And they, I'm certain they made more money with the book than they did with the movie. So they just, they had great mind. Nobody got hurt in the process. It was just good old-fashioned American hucksterism at its best and they certainly knew how to do it well and just even the way that they would approach films with the whole idea of untamed mistress where so much of it is travelogue footage and then they insert all the other stuff alongside of it i love that or like the the they did the same thing and please don't touch me as well where it's like kind of this mondo thing of oh, this Indian guy touching this hot chain and look at how it boils the water and i'm waiting for Barker to be like, okay, separate up, separate up. Like, you got it, pal. That's exactly what it's all about. And yeah, please don't touch me. The opening of that is sheer delirium. It makes no sense whatsoever. And it's in the movie. I am not a highfalutin type, but I would say there's some sort of elevated surrealism in the product they they achieved in Please Don't Touch Me. You really can't describe it to somebody. It's got to be <laughs> experienced firsthand. And that's when they're really wonderful. When they deviate from their obvious talents, marketing what the audience wants, and they go a little sideways into these realms that no man or woman would venture into on their own and come up with something extraordinary. I think it happens, and please don't touch me. Certainly the exotic ones, and certainly the three pictures they made with the preacher Estes Perkle. Love them, hate them. You can't say they're like anything else. Before they got involved with Estes Perkle, were there particular actors or people behind the camera that they would use continuously? Various cameramen came and went, and definitely actors like Cecil Scaife. He gets his arm ripped off by Sleepy LaBeef in the exotic one and gets beaten to death with his own arm. 
he was a complete non-actor and big wheel on the music scene. He hung around with Sam Phillips and Billy Sherrill, the great producer of George Jones and Tammy Wynette. And uh, he just was so hungry to be an actor. And these kind of people work very cheap, Mike. And the Ormans knew it. And they'd give them all. And Cecil comes back for the religious pictures. He plays the great communist commissar in The Footman Tire You. These are unbelievable performances that we the thespians, I don't think, could concoct. It had to come from, from a left field. So, yeah, they had this sort of ragtag bunch of stock players and people that worked in the films, and a lot of them came into the religious films when they switched into that. Can you tell me about that switch? How did they go from 1968's The Exotic Ones to 1971's If Footman Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Still one of the best titles ever. Oh, yeah. What, a, what, an, what an obtuse title. It all centers around a plane crash that happened in October, I think, of 67. They were on their way to a premiere. Ron was a pilot and would fly them. I mean, it said Hollywood and hot drive in Hollywood, that is. He'd fly the family to premieres of their movies where they were the stars and they'd be there to sign autographs. So they're on their way to Louisville. The plane takes off. There's immediate malfunction. The engine stops midair. Tim Mormon remembers the, you know, noting that the engine had stopped. And Ron had to glide the plane into a cow pasture outside of Nashville. Both his mother and father were badly injured in the crash. And they both claimed to have a religious experience aboard the plane. And Ron said, he talked to the Lord and he said, if you get us through this crash, I will devote my life to the Lord. June also told me she saw an angel on the wing of the plane saying, not your time yet. You have more to do and we'll have to do with Jesus. Okay. It didn't happen right away because they made the most extreme exploitation film they could ever make after that, the exotic ones, which saw strippers and, and monsters and various musical entities from Nashville, but after that, Estes Perkle, who is a minister in New Albany, Mississippi, somehow it happened onto the Ormans through a bit player in their movies, and Perkle had this sermon, this anti-communist sermon, called "If Fitman Tire You, What Will Horses Do?" And he'd made it into a little pamphlet book, and he'd made an album out of it, but he really thought it would be a great movie. Now, this is curious in itself, Mike, because Estes Perkle didn't go to the movies. When he'd go to a motel, he'd turn the TV around so he wouldn't become intoxicated by the charms of, say, Leave it to Beaver. I don't know if he ever went to a movie theater, but he had this notion, and Ron turned out to be just the right guy. He had this very feverish sermon, and... Ron applied all the exploitation drill buzzer effects to get this sermon over to the people. And he came up with the brilliant idea of having Estes talk to the camera as he preached, which gives it this weird, intimate feeling that is either going to make you come to Jesus or flee the room. 
And there's nothing quite like it. And of course, there was a lot of gore in the movie because Perkle felt that the communists were going to annihilate godless Americans. So you see piles of children bloodied and thrown in ditches. And his own son plays a character who defies the commandant and gets beheaded in the film. It's so unbelievably extreme. And there's a certain passion to it. You can feel Ron just embracing this whole thing and really going for it. I think it's his greatest movie, personally. There's, again, I'm repeating myself, but there's nothing like it in the history of film, certainly. Uh, what kind of person was S.S. Perkle, other than being very not tempted by Leave to Beaver? It's funny, because I found out that he was a great practical joker, that he liked to play play jokes on people, and he was really good nature. He comes across in the movies as very kind of dour and heavy. And I just think he felt that in order to get the message across, he, there was no kidding around. This wasn't like the hippie Christianity of the 70s. Au contraire, he was dead set against any of that. And funnily enough, any kind of spiritualism that might Attach, even though the Ormans, of course, had been drawn to that stuff in their previous incantation, there's a lot of putting that stuff down in, in the films. So he had a very old-fashioned message. He was going to stick to it. And uh, he wasn't a phony. Obviously, the cliche these days, the oily preachers who have their hand in your pocket to get your cash or whatever you want to say, Estes wasn't like that. He really believed in what his mission, he was dead serious about it, and these films are the result, and they got crazy, oh, only three of them, before they parted ways acrimoniously. Uh, the elements were just, they were Hollywood, they were show business people in the end, and I just think that was too much for Estes, who clearly wasn't. But for three millions, they created a lot of delirium, and people genuinely liked him. He was who he appeared to be. He just wasn't a fake. I just pictured them stepping so carefully around him, especially with their past. I think that's true. Eddie King, who was in the films in Burning Hell, he plays great demon. It's never clear if this is Satan or just your generic demon. But he has this great stained glass face makeup done by June, who did all the makeup costumes for their films. I should mention that. But he said when he first flew down there, Tim got him on the plane and said, look, you're going to be asked a question when you get on the set. And there's only one answer. I don't care what the truth is. And they're going to ask you, are you saved? And you're going to say yes, because if you say no, it's going to slow down the production and we're all going to have to stop while they attempt to get you saved. And we don't have that kind of money in this budget. So just answer yes. So that gives you the vibe of the whole thing. After they split up with S.S. Perkle, they still made one more religious picture with the 39 Stripes. Oh, they made a few. Yeah, 39 Stripes, which is a very low-key kind of Mormon film noir set with a prison gang. I like it. Other people find it less interesting than paint drawing. And, and then Tim started directing a few pictures like It's About the Second Coming, which I think is just fabulous. That barely got a release. 
I'm just so glad that the film is on the Blu-ray set for people to enjoy, but it's got science fiction, it's got horror, it's got the future. It's really the slickest product the Armands ever made, and it's really a testament to Tim's great filmmaking skills, and I, I hope it finds an audience now that it's on the set. And then the last film they made was The Sacred Symbol, which incorporated a lot of certain amount of the same footage that was in Please Don't Touch Me and used to a whole different extreme in the sacred symbol. And it really, Tim took it all full circle, combining the Ormond's history in this lab. It is stars there, the regulars. And it's another picture I think is really quite, quite charming in, in its simplicity. So yeah, it's unfortunate after that, the church business kind of petered out. They did some home video releases, which are on the Blu-ray set. But it's unfortunate that their time in, in filmmaking came to an end there in the 80s and 90s. He knew the picture business inside and out, and they really lost something once he was gone. And times had just changed. You couldn't do the kind of things they were doing. The mainstream studios were doing them now with Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, things like that. They'd they'd copped all the exploitation flash and and were doing it, doing it in a, in a slicker way that the kids wanted to see. They didn't want to see all this cheapo stuff anymore. So that's just the way the cookie crumbles. How was it dealing with Tim? And then did you have to deal with the Urkel estate when you were putting this together as well? Tim, it's funny because when I started working on the book in earnest. 10 years ago, Tim has, he's lost his sight. And so how it would work was I'd send him questions. I'd write questions out in an email. He'd try have it translated to text and then he'd send me back audio answers. There must be two, I don't know, maybe 500 of these files. And this augmented all the stuff I did with June and Tim back in the day. He was here and I wanted to get it right. And when you write a book, things come up that you don't ever plan on. Saturday, that was a whole experience. And he was such a good sport. There was never a time where he said, enough. And I'm like the Robert Caro of exploitation book authors. There's no detail that's too insignificant to explore. And then through Nicholas. He ended up representing the films because Greg Perkle made a deal with him to exhibit the films. And through a guy by the name of Brian Rosenquist, who plays a role in the book, he said he'd go down there and, and, and we'd do a podcast for Nicholas's site by NWR. And I got to meet both Anne Estes's widow, who's still alive then. And Greg, they couldn't have been more gracious. They answered all my questions. And I always felt the kind of funny because I was in the Orman camp and they did have a bad split when, when they ended their association. But all, all I've been forgiven or forgotten. And they were tremendous. I can't say it. This is a book full of great people. It was just a thrill hanging out with all of them. I can't even imagine the stories that you can tell just about the times that you had. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you one. I left this out of the book. I don't know why. At the end of our time together, June had shown me all the movies and she started asking me if I was saved. And uh, I wasn't. And she 
it on thick in that Gregory Raymond way. It was like, you might want to think about it, James. And I got on a plane with my then girlfriend, Carol Nixon, who was wearing a big blonde wig. I can't remember why. But we were flying back, and she had a terrible fear of flying. And, and it was a terrible flight. We were both white with fear because there was so much turbulence. And all I could think was, June's revenge. I, I didn't get saved. Look what's happening. I bet. I had my moment. I was on a plane just like them, and I didn't take up the invitation. Needless to say, I had a fear of flying that was only cured years later when I wrote a book about Neil Young, and he, he made sure every interview was done on an airplane. So it was a do or die, and now I have no more fear of flying. <laughs> I was so sad when I was watching the movies and they would have the title cards that would come up, especially the ones where it's like the original elements were damaged in a flood from what, 2010. And that must have just been so devastating. Oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. Now imagine, oh man, if we had had the negative for please don't touch me, it's got that florid hothouse color. And if it had been precisely monkeyed with in the right fashion, we have a great archivist who's involved in the restorations, Peter Conheim. Turn that guy loose and his team on that, it would have been a thing of beauty. As it is, it's much better than, as you've noted, in any other presentation. But yeah, it was, it was a grim fact to find out that all these negatives that Tim had been keeping in his closet ended up in the drink when there was a flood where, where, is, where he was living. But we did our best. We, we hunted down prints, and there are not a lot of prints of Mormon stuff that have survived. But we've, we chased down every lead, investigated every possibility here around the globe. And thankfully, the, and some of the stuff, like the version of Edge of Tomorrow, that's from my own VHS tape because there's no other source. So when you see all that fuzziness, it's because there's nothing else to, to go off of. But it's great because Anna's history that was so close for being completely lost, and let's face it, is a rather obscure corner of even the exploitation world, has now been exalted to its certain and undeniable place in history. And man, I couldn't be happier. And I'm just so glad that Tim is here to recognize the tribute paid to his family, his mother, and himself. After you put together this incredible collection of the movies and the book, where else can you go? What else can you do after this? I retire. <laughs> Actually, I'm 70% of the way through on a book about Gary Stewart, honky-tonk singer I was pals with. And that book I also started in 86. I'm really starting to feel like mortality is the Grim Reaper is tapping me on the shoulder to have these weird projects that I started at the beginning of my career finally being finished, but I'll take it. You said that the NWR website is being redone right now. I love the work that you guys do on that. And so many, again, great titles that I've been able to see through that, that I've never been able to see before. It's been terrific. Oh, yeah. That's a whole story unto itself. Nicholas and I and our various obsessions. <laughs> I that was a massive undertaking. And it just kept, it was like the Winchester Mystery House. We just kept adding and adding. 
and any crackpot idea he was game to do. Well, we did this thing on Dale Barry, who was a very obscure Texas auteur of a very grimy exploitation. And I, I found all the women who had been in the films, and it turned out they all had lived kind of superstar lives off the radar. For example, we went and found uh, Beverly Massey, who started a picture called Hot-Blooded Woman. And she's also famous for being a Christian ventriloquist who works with a puppet called Eric. And so we went down, and before I know it, she's got Eric out of the box, and he, and Eric's insulting me as she's talking to me. And I'm thinking, my God, I've died and gone to heaven. This is so fantastic. And she, she sang songs and not out of that, Mike, but was shot by Anne McGillan in 3D. So people can don glasses and see this 3D content on their computer. It's just a kind of crazy stuff that only, only Nicholas and I would dream up. And I'm so glad that all that took place. And yeah, they're working on a new design. I, I hope it. I did a lot of stuff for that site. So I hope it's back up sometime this fall. So you're working on this other book now. Do you have any future plans for other things that you need to wrap up before you hit that retirement? <laughs> before June <laughs> comes and, and takes me away to my fate. Yeah, I For instance, Jack Nietzsche, the great arranger, composer, movie score, he, he put his whole life up for me on tape. And I, and that's just been sitting there waiting. And I feel very guilty that I never got back to Jack's book. So there's that. I'd like to do a collection of my articles that are on by NWI that I did for the village voice, thumb comment, various other places. I'd like to have all those in one place. And as the cliche author statement goes, I've been working on a novel, which is about all these obsessions we've been talking about. And that would really be the icing on the cake if I can get off my tuchus and finish that. We'll see if that ever happens. Seems like you got a few things keeping you busy right now. Oh, I got plenty to do. I just got to put on my Gregory Raymond hat, talk people into fitting the bill for my obsessions one way or another. <laughs> you should be really proud of yourself for all the work on the Ormond stuff and just the results are remarkable. All I could say is thank you, June and Tim. They made it possible. And as Tim said to me, and he gave me a quote that we used for the title of the Blu-ray set, and that was from Hollywood to heaven. And I just thought, oh, that's so beautiful. Tim just wrapped it up. And I'm just honored and thrilled to have known the Armands. I hope I spread a little of their magic that has been in my life through the book in the Blu-ray set. I'm just glad it exists and somebody appreciates it. Thank you, Mr. McDonough, for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate this. Thanks a million, Mike. Anytime. I'm around. <laughs>